Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed Support for the California Report comes from Barracuda Networks, cloud generation firewalls engineered for today's modern globally dispersed networks. Learn more at barracuda.com firewalls. Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. And by Paint Care. Through Paint Care, paint manufacturers make it easier for households and businesses to recycle leftover house paint with over 800 convenient drop-off locations around California. On today's California Report magazine, we meet a Los Angeles man who says the Me Too movement has made him want to speak up about overcoming an ugly part of his past. The first time I can remember actually physically abusing a woman, I was about 16 years old. I'll never forget the look on her face. And we visit a Sierra Gold Rush town where tourists who take home old nails and rocks mail them back, swearing they're cursed. I'm sorry that I took this piece of metal from the town. I thought it was all a joke, but it wasn't at all. Things are happening that are very hard to explain. Plus the story behind the town called You Bet. I'm Sasha Coca, and this is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. If you've ever taken a lift ride, you know that ding might be the only sound you hear for the entire trip. Ride sharing can be sometimes a kind of silent, awkward experience. But there's one Bay Area driver who tries to establish a human connection with everyone who steps into his white Prius with some spontaneous entertainment. I am hip-hop, so watch how I drop. Yeah, straight off the top of the dome, my Rome is San Francisco, Bay Area call my own because it's Tokyo, but still we That's Ashel Eldridge, who calls himself the Lift Rapper. Reporter Alan Young caught a ride with him and tells us his mission is to pull people into a fresh mental state, giving them something to think about long after the ride is over. When passengers climb into Ashel's car, they're in for a memorable ride. He asks them to come up with a topic, and he makes up a rap about it on the spot. This writer requests a song about deli sandwiches. Nothing but the cheese and the sandwich on the side. I want some lettuce and tomatoes. Yo, I let the mayonnaise slide. Oh, yes, it's so good. Might be a vegan today because I like falafel. But it's not all fun and falafel. Ashell prefers to take on more complex social issues with his music and loves it when writers request songs about immigration, 
gentrification, or community health. This writer requested a song about the empowerment of women. Women entrepreneurs make the world more safe for climate change and their human race. His passengers say at first they're startled when their Lyft driver starts rapping to them. But, they say, he turns a typically mundane trip into a party. I love it. Ah! Well done. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you for sharing your, your creativity. All right, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Ash L. said he started rapping for his ride-sharing passengers a few years ago as a way to pass the time behind the wheel. Eventually, he decided to turn it into a show for his YouTube channel called The Legend of the Lift Rapper. The beats are all copyright-free. After the song, passengers give their consent to be recorded. Clearly, I got to witness like a very high level of creativity and being able to like think on the spot. That's Tom Chang, a UC Berkeley student who asked Ashel to rap a song about anxiety and uncertainty. That's because Chang was on his way to take the GRE. To the GRE, yeah. A lot of anxiety, about to take the test, but don't stress at all, yep, you got the rest. Before he grabbed his backpack and ran into the testing center, Tom said he'd like to learn more about the Lyft rapper. I think everyone's got a very interesting life story, and, um... His is definitely one that should be heard. Ashell draws inspiration from his family, starting with his grandfather, who was a minister. His poetry, in how he starts the sermon, his poetry, and how he ends it, and what he says and what he doesn't say, his pausing, his inflection, he raises his voice. All that was really what I was attracted to. I was like, sure, you know, I get the basic premise and the message, but it was it was the the, the storytelling. Ashell hopes the stories he's telling through his raps give his passengers a greater awareness of the forces that impact their stress and well-being. Here he is rapping to a stranger about climate change. Nature calling, yeah, we got to see it now. Here's this thing, no direction we can handle it. Ashell's activism extends beyond the driver's seat. He's part of a nonprofit called Hip Hop is Green, which hosts dinners and uses live hip hop to raise awareness about community health. He says he learned about the importance of healthy eating from his grandmother, who died of diabetes, and his aunt, Geraldine Eldridge, who was a former member of the Black Panther Party. The Panthers are known, in part, for creating an array of community social programs, including free breakfasts for school kids. Unlocking the mind for young minds, mindfulness and meditation, elevation over time. When you get in the car with the Lyft rapper, his goal is to make you think or feel something that will pull you from your current mindset. He says... While machines can replace drivers, you can't replace the human connection that people crave throughout the day. The robots couldn't couldn't co-create that moment, you know. And it's something inherently human to create art, which is based off of the moment. It's based off of, like, you know, the bumps in the road, the left turn, the right turn, what we ate today, all that, what people are thinking about, what's going on in the news, what's going on in people's personal lives. All those things are playing into the music. Ashel Eldridge says enjoying a rap song is just the first step to becoming more aware about the possibilities of everyday life. For the California Report, I'm Alan Young. You can see the Lyft rapper in action. Check out the video at California Report.
org. Now we're going to cross the Sierra Nevada to the remote California ghost town of Bodie. It's a place that's famous not just for its gold rush history, but for something darker, a curse that supposedly falls on anyone who dares to take something from the abandoned town. And even though some visitors swear they've been cursed, this legend isn't exactly what you think. Carly Severn went to Bodie to find out more. The Curse of Bodhi. For years, it's been the subject of rumor, supernatural lore, and online chatter. It's said that removing anything, even a rock, from this decaying ghost town in the hills east of Yosemite brings the perpetrator sudden misfortune, from sheer bad luck to health problems and even mysterious accidents. People around here know about the so-called curse, all right. My brother once stole a couple rocks from the Bodhi, and later that night he just couldn't sleep, kept being bothered, and he kept getting like his door banged on. If you take something, uh, you're first born gets taken out of uh, the crib and you'll never see him again. Is that true? I don't know, but I'm afraid of taking anything from this place. And hearing that, how could you not go take a closer look? Designated a state historic park since 1962, Bodie is over 15 miles from the nearest town, connected only by a narrow, winding highway that turns into an unpaved dirt road. I'm here to meet Catherine Jones, who works with the park rangers to show visitors around this remote place. We are on Main Street in Bodie, but if we were here in 1879, this would be wall-to-wall buildings. So this is only a small portion of what used to exist here, but we're lucky that we have so much here to see. Bodhi is preserved in what the Park Service calls arrested decay. And while the carpenter shop and the firehouse are little more than tumble-down ruins, other buildings and homes look like they were just left yesterday. You can peer through their windows and glimpse their dusty interiors, where dishes still line the counters. This place was the archetypal gold rush boomtown. The riches found in these hills back in 1859 drew people from across the nation. And standing amid this sprawl of creaking timber, under the looming shadow of the Bodhi stamp mill up on the hillside, it's hard not to imagine what it must have been like. A noisy, thriving, hard-scrabble town of up to 10,000 souls, where gunfights were common. In the peak, there were over 60 saloons and zero churches. But when mining dwindled in the 1880s, people began abandoning this place in their droves. They left behind their homes, often with all their worldly goods still inside them. Slowly, Bodhi became a ghost town, but one that was littered with items to tempt souvenir hunters. And they are tempted. We know this because for years, the people who take stuff from Bodhi have been writing letters to the staff here to confess and sending that stuff back, because now they believe they're cursed. Dear Bodie, 11th of August, 2003. I'm sorry that I took this piece of metal from the town. I thought it was all a joke, but it wasn't at all. Things are happening that are very hard to explain. You can have these godforsaken rocks back. I've never had so much rotten luck in my life. 
Please forgive me for ever testing the curse of Bodhi. The next thing you know, he broke his leg, and now his other leg has cellulitis. So I searched high and low for that nail, and I found it. Dear Bodhi, Sarah and I took the glass pieces. I thought they were pretty. My fish died the day after. Fair warning for anyone that thinks this is just folklore. My life has never seen such turmoil. Please take my warning and do not remove even a speck of dust. The thing is, though, this isn't actually some long-standing legend started by superstitious prospectors or credulous ghost hunters. The curse of Bodhi is, in fact, the invention of the State Park Service itself. A kind of boogeyman, Catherine told me, created by a single ranger many years ago that kind of just took off like nobody expected. A story designed to discourage light-fingered tourists from filling their pockets with ghost town trinkets. I wish I knew what was going through people's heads. To me, it just makes sense that you wouldn't take uh, something from a park, any park. Bodie is a giant outdoor museum, and everything should be treated like it is when you go inside an indoor museum. And this is why inventing a curse that haunts you until you make things right has actually created a whole new problem for Bodhi. People are sending these artefacts back, and it's not as if the rangers can just dump them back onto Main Street. Take this obsidian rock a woman returned just a few months ago. It potentially could have come from a you know, prehistoric site, a Native American site, um, but now we don't know because now it's out of context, and that's what's unfortunate about this stuff being removed from its true place. Truly, I don't know if this even came from Bodhi. The Park Service has been so successful at maintaining Bodhi in arrested decay that maybe that's why people feel so inclined to just pick stuff up, just like the letters say. Below my feet, there are shards of colourful glass, just like glinting in the sunlight. And if I wanted to take it, all I would have to do is bend down, pick it up, and pop it in my pocket. It's that easy to take stuff from Bodhi. That stuff, of course... It's actually California heritage, but then so much about Bodhi is not what it seems. It's a golden boomtown that now lies silent, with a curse that isn't, but people believe in anyway. And the fact that it endures says a lot about our desire to believe in the otherworldly in places like this. Or perhaps just the power of a guilty conscience. For The California Report, I'm Carly Seven in Bodhi. And now, here's a very different kind of story about recovering something from ruins. This is a story that starts with Kathy Lampy, whose mom died last June. Kathy stored her ashes in a velvet bag. I put her in the china cabinet. I didn't know where to put her. <laughs> so I thought, well, that's a fitting place for my mom. But then came the Wine Country wildfires last October, which burned Lampy's home in Santa Rosa to the ground. 
and her mom's ashes were lost, mingled with ashes from her sofa and front door. The California Report's April Demboski tells us about a new canine forensic team that helped Kathy Lampy search for her mother's remains. When the Army Corps of Engineers began clearing out the wreckage from her neighbor's lot, Kathy Lampy knew her home was next. After losing her mom to cancer, she didn't want to lose her again to the fires. Then I thought, well, geez, I better get, get somebody out here to, to try and find her. I didn't want her to go to a landfill. Lampy's two-story house is now six inches of rubble. She walks through with two archaeologists and two dog handlers. They develop a search strategy before bringing the dogs out, an English Labrador named Echo and a Belgian Malinois named Annie. This was in the cabinet. Dog teams like these have been deployed before to search for the remains of Amelia Earhart and members of the Donner Party. Oh, is it? Yeah. Okay. But this fall is the first time they've been brought to recover human ashes from the wildfires. That means that it fell this way. Handler Karen Atkinson puts Echo to work first, sniffing around, her nose gliding over the ground with the grace of an ice skater. She stops by the stairway. There's my alert. When Echo finds what she's looking for, she lies down next to it. So she's telling me she's made her decision. Now Echo goes back to the truck, and Annie, the Belgian Malinois, takes a turn. Her handler, Chris Black, has her do the search all over again from scratch, so there are no false positives. We start imprinting them at a very young age and introducing that target order. In this case, human bone. I feed her when she finds what her target source is. After a few minutes, Annie lies down in the same spot Echo picked. Yes, good girl. We got it. Let's go. The archaeologists wait for the dogs to find a lead, and then they zero in. Mike Newland and Alex DeGiorgi zip up their full-body Tyvek suits, grab their trowels, and start digging. We're looking for a pocket of ash that's homogeneous. It's usually kind of a reddish brown. Sometimes they find it, a discreet pile of red ash with bits of bone or teeth in it. Let me turn this thing over. But DeGiorgie says this is one of the hardest recoveries they've worked on. Yeah, you know, the deal here is we're trying to find ashes within ashes, and it's not always that definitive. So far, DeGiorgie's team has recovered nearly 50 sets of ashes from the wreckage of the wine country fires. But they're all volunteers working only on the weekends. I'm sure that the scale of this issue is really an epidemic. DeGiorgie says this process is totally new and isn't part of the cleanup protocol for FEMA or the Army Corps of Engineers. But he says it should be. So when a disaster happens and folks start filling out all the paperwork associated with insurance claims and what did you have in the house, one sentence needs to be, did you have human remains in the house? And if yes, it triggers this process. DeGiorgi sees Newland sweeping a lighter pocket of ash from Kathy Lampy's stairway into a dustpan. What Michael's showing us looks pretty good. A lot of it's almost a texture thing. I mean, you could see like this, how just finely powdered this is. I'm going to bag some of this stuff. DeGiorgi scoops the ash into a gallon-sized Ziploc bag. Annie comes out for one last sniff around the site and immediately plops down next to their bag. 
The Georgie walks the bag over to Lampy. Here's your mom. Thank you very much. Lampy tucks the Ziploc bag under her arm. She says now they can do a proper burial for her mom in a place the family can go visit and talk to her. For the California Report, I'm April Dimbaski in Santa Rosa. As part of a series we're calling Us Too, women across California have been sharing their stories of abuse and sexual harassment with us in their own words. Today, a bit of a different take. We hear from a man in Los Angeles who says for most of his life, he was an abuser. He sees the Me Too movement as an opportunity for men like him to also stand up, speak out, and acknowledge how they've hurt others. My name is Stephen McMarion. I'm 62 years old, and I'm from Los Angeles, California. I grew up in a family. Being the oldest of the young men in my family, had three brothers under me and three sisters over me. Therefore, I was told I was the man of the house. My dad was in and out of my life, mostly out. I learned basically from what I heard on the streets. I used to hear my mother and her friends and My sisters sometimes speak negatively of men. And as a young man, I took that personally and figured they were talking about me too. So I took a defense to it. The first time I can remember actually physically abusing a woman, I was about 16 years old and I had a girlfriend. I was with a friend of mine and I saw him striking his girlfriend. And so I thought that was the right thing to do, and so I did the same thing, and I struck my girl. When I did, she was very surprised. I'll never forget the look on her face when she asked, why did you do that? And I really didn't have an answer. I know it didn't feel right, but she didn't leave. She stayed there. So that was like, you know, the ticket for me to say it was okay. When I was about 30 years old, I fell into a relationship that lasted for about 10 years. I have to admit that I abused her in uh, every uh, fashion of the word abuse. There came a time where she was not afraid of me anymore. She told me she wasn't afraid of me anymore. It shocked me because I didn't know what to do. Uh, To me, I was losing my form of control. So I threatened her. Matter of fact, I threatened her with a gun, and she actually went to the police. Well, that cost me time in prison. And while in prison, I received a spiritual revelation. had a chance to look at myself and see the ugliness of myself and who I thought I was and who I was not. This was in 1998. So... In the wake of the Me Too movement, I wanted to share my story. I wanted to share the, dis- the distortion of who I thought women were and that they were to be used. 
I realize now this is a time of healing. And it feels good to be free to be able to say these things. I can remember uh, in that 10-year relationship, uh, my protection was for her to be silent, for her not to say anything. You know, I, I thank the Lord Most High for allowing me to be free enough to speak about uh, the ugliness of that part of me. I really honestly believe that there are more men that need to see this within themselves. That story was produced by KQED senior editor Tanya Mosley. Next week, we'll revisit our groundbreaking investigative project called Rape on the Night Shift to find out how janitors who've been assaulted on the job are reacting to the Me Too movement. Women like Georgina Hernandez, who cleaned a hotel lobby and was raped by her supervisor twice. She says seeing women in Hollywood come forward about abuse makes her sad and angry at the same time. A la vez me da tristeza y coraje porque digo yo, eh, ellas tienen dinero. Those women have money, she says. They're powerful. They have everything in life that she doesn't have. She's proud of them because they're speaking up. But when I spoke up, she says, who listened to me? Pero a mí quién me escuchó? We'll have that story for you next week. I've also been a part of the team that's updating the documentary film version of Rape on the Night Shift on Frontline. Tune in next Tuesday on your PBS station. A place called... What? 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 Como? What? Starting directions to you, bet. Now we've got another in our series, a place called What About California Places with Bizarre or Surprising Names. Listener Danielle Smith of San Francisco emailed us asking about another gold rush town, a place called You Bet off Highway 174 in Grass Valley. So we got in touch with a guy named Dan Brady who has deep roots in this community that's no longer really a town. His father was born and raised there, and now Brady lives in San Mateo, but he's been visiting You Bet at least once a year since he was a kid. We called him to find out just how You Bet got its name. The story goes that there were people, mostly miners, uh, they established a town around a local bar, and they decided they needed a name for the town, the senior gentlemen of the town got together and met at the bar. After a period of time, the gentleman couldn't agree on what the name of the town would be, and the bartender was getting a little tired of having to pour so many drinks and said, look, the next thing anybody says, that's the name of this town. And one of the fellows piped up and said, you bet. And they said, that's it. You bet. You bet was in a place uh, where hydraulic mining took place. My grandfather worked uh, for the mines, and when my dad came along, he also worked in the mines as a teenager, really. We'd go up and visit the holidays and things like that, and my dad would take us around and, uh, well, look like the moon, really. It was a gravelly, uh, rocky, uh, very little vegetation. You know, nobody's minded in any serious manner since the 1930s. And now there's trees that are, you know, 70, 80 years old, and there was a long time there weren't many animals out there. 
Now you see deer and bear and mountain lion, foxes and things like that, because the forest is reclaiming it. It's coming back. That interview with Dan Brady was produced by Bianca Taylor. Email us your ideas for unusual California place names, calreport at kqed.org. And that's the California Report magazine, a production of KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. Our director is Susie Racho. Our technical producer is Seal Muller with additional engineering from Katie McMurrin. You can listen to us wherever you are if you subscribe to our podcast. Look for the California Report magazine on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, write us a review and spread the word. Victoria Maulione is our senior editor. Our online producer is David Marks, and our social media producer is Miranda Leitzinger. Our team also includes Bianca Taylor, Julia McAvoy, Ingrid Becker, Ethan Lindsay, and Holly Kernan. I'm Sasha Coca. Thanks for listening. This is the California Report magazine. Your state, your stories. Support for the California Report comes from the James Irvine Foundation, expanding economic and political opportunity for Californians who are working but struggling with poverty. More at irvine.org. Block Construction, a builder committed to enhancing communities in the Bay Area and Central Coast. B-L-A-C-H dot com. Block Construction, together building greatness. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose Fund for Strategic Innovation supports transformative ideas that benefit humanity while protecting the natural world, recognizing through science the interdependence of all living systems. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast.